Welcome to an inspiring message from Pastor John Cameron, lead pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will encourage, inspire, and empower you. We are closing out a series. If you're new to Arise, we're closing out a series tonight um, that we've entitled The Making of Me. And if you haven't been here for any other sessions, I I hope you're going to enjoy the final installment, but feel free to go back on YouTube and to watch part two and part one, because I really do believe they'll speak to you in your life. And we've been using this series to talk about how God makes us into the person that he wants us to be. And we've been using the life of Jacob. And primarily what we've been doing is we've been turning up in this guy's life, this biblical character by the name of Jacob. If you're new to church, you may not have heard of Jacob, but you've probably heard what God changed his name to become. So he got renamed by God and his new name was Israel. And no matter who you are, you've heard of Israel. And, and uh, he's an incredibly important character in the Bible. And so the, we've been looking at um, the three visitations that he had of God in his life. And, and they're, they're pretty significant. But when you start reading them, we preached last week about the fact that he literally had a visitation where he saw the stairway to heaven, angels ascending and descending on the stairway. And at the top of the stairway, 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 at the top of the stairway, he saw the very throne of God. Um, The week before that, I got to preach about another passage of scripture that really works as easy as a preacher. And it's where Jacob uh, literally struggles with God all night. He wrestles with God all night. I mean, that's just a cool passage to preach from. God literally dislocates his hip and he's dragged along on the ground and demanding a blessing from God. And it's just a really cool passage. Tonight, we're going to look at the third of Jacob's three visitations. If I can be honest with you, it's just, it's the most ordinary of the three. If I, the other two are like a preacher's dream. This one, this one's like seemingly insignificant. But I just want you to know that sometimes, sometimes things that you think in your life are relatively bland can have the greatest impact. And uh, this, this third encounter between Jacob and the Lord, I believe, was the most impacting he experienced in his life. I want to talk to you around this theme this evening. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. If someone is sitting next to you tonight, choose the person that you like the most and just tell them, it's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Now, slightly awkwardly, turn to the person that you don't like quite as much as the other one and tell them it's who you are. It's who you are. (laughs) Genesis chapter 35 and verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now jump down to verse 9. Now that Jacob had returned to Padan Aram, God appeared to him again at Bethel. God blessed him, saying, Your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. Then God said, I'm El Shaddai, I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants. And I will give you the land I once gave to Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants 
after you. Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob. Then Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark the place where God had spoken to him. And he poured wine over it as an offering to the Lord. Note that as an offering to the Lord. Young adults not to be consumed, to be poured out. Just making it really clear. Oh, week and all that. We've got to make sure we're just getting things sorted here. Yeah, when they hand you the beer, just pour it out as an offering to the Lord. That's going to work in your favor. Yeah, come on. Every Bible-believing Christian said, Amen, Amen. And anointed the pillar with olive oil. Don't do that near your suede shoes. Come back for another week. But I have destroyed a brand new pair of common projects by pouring olive oil on them in the middle of a church service. It still, it still hurts me daily. And Jacob named the place Bethel, which means house of God, because God had spoken to him there. Father, Lord, as we open your word today, I pray you'd speak into our hearts. I thank you for the amazing group of people that I get the privilege of speaking to tonight, and I pray that this word will be life to them. Lord, I pray that you will be magnified. I pray that you will bring freedom to our hearts. You're making us. What a novel concept that we don't come into this world ready-made, but there is a making of me, a development of me. A revealing of me, a chiseling away of what is not me to show the world who you have called us to be. And I pray that on this, this third night of this series that you would speak into our hearts. I bind every cell phone, may it supernaturally be turned to flight mode. May every crying baby be silenced and may the voice of the Lord resound. May every temperature in every auditorium be optimal. Not too hot that we are lethargic, not too cold, that we shiver and wish the service would end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen. Come on, if you believe that prayer, give God some praise. Swipe right from the top right-hand corner and then just click the little airplane and you'll get more out of this message. What God is going to do in your life, what God is wanting to do in your life, God is going to do in your life God is powerful God is able God never lies God doesn't change his mind God never runs out of resources God is faithful whatever God starts God finishes whatever God says he's going to do he is going to do and when God says about your life I'm going to do this you can relax you can actually chill God's got this what he says he's going to do, God is going to do. He's in charge. You don't have to stress it. You don't have to worry. God is big. He's powerful. He's old, which means he's super smart. And what God says he's going to do, he is going to do. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus kind of expounded on this. He said to us, beginning in verse 25, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear. Come on, young adults. Don't worry about what you'll wear. He said, your father already knows what you need. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God's going to take care of everything else as well. What an amazing promise. God says, I don't have to get stressed or worried or concerned about so much of what occupies the thoughts and attention of the entire planet. I can just focus on Him. I can seek after Him. And He's so faithful, He's going to take care of everything else. That's a crazy good promise, isn't it? That's a really big challenge too. Don't worry about your life. 
I mean, that's a commandment from God, right? That's a challenging commandment from God. Do not worry about your life. Anybody else out there willing to be honest enough to admit along with me that my wife, my life, a little bit my wife, depending on the day, but my life is exclusively what I worry about. I mean, if there's a problem in your life, I'm concerned, but I ain't losing sleep over it. I love you, but it's not robbing me of my peace. My life is exclusively what I worry about. If somebody else's child is sick, I'll pray for you and then sleep like a baby. If it's my kid, I might be up half the night. The truth is, the Bible says don't worry, but somebody's got to tell my head. Somebody's got to tell the way that I live. Because in the way that I approach my life, I believe the Scripture, but I don't obey the Scripture. I think the reason why I don't purely obey it is because beneath the surface, every single one of us, I think we all think that we have to add something to the working of God. I mean, most of us in these auditoriums tonight would be willing to admit that we believe in the reality of God. We just kind of think we have to help Him out a bit. Or what He has for us isn't going to become real in our lives. I mean, we clearly see this in the life of Jacob. Jacob, if you know anything about him, is a biblical character who just has to be successful. I mean, he is a worker. He is a go-for-it kind of character. He's ambitious, he's driven, he's focused, he's resilient, he goes after it. He's a hard worker, he's a deal maker. I mean, he's still living at home and he's convincing his brother to swap a meal of soup for a birthright. That's a good deal. He's doing deals with Laban to get his daughter as his wife. He kind of got shafted on that one. But he's out there. He's going after it in the things of life. He just really wants to do well in life. I wonder why. Maybe it was fear. Maybe he had something to prove. Maybe he got hurt. Maybe he didn't like the way that people perceived him. Maybe he's just naturally a guy who has to be better than everybody else. Maybe it was insecurity. But Jacob has to to be successful. What's weird about Jacob, because every time you see him in the Bible, he's just a guy going after it. But what's weird about it is in contrast to his behavior is the reality that before he was even born, his destiny was already prophesied over his life. I mean, when he was still in his mother's womb, God visits his mother and says to her, the younger of the two twins within you, the older, sorry, is going to serve the younger. In other words, Esau came out first, but God had already declared Esau might be the first in position, but he's not gonna be the first in reality. There is destiny over Jacob's life. And if God has said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Yet even though this kid is full of so much prophetic promise and whatever God starts, he finish and whatever God says he's gonna do, he's gonna do. And he who began a good work in you will always bring it to completion. Even though all this is true, Jacob lives his life in this way that makes you think 
He's just got to help God along. Even though it was declared by God, Jacob is still out here trying to do it on his own. And he's not the only one. Many people, in fact, probably every person that is hearing this message tonight might have some level of degree where you're saying, God loves me, he's got a plan for my life. But what's common to all of God's children in this fallen world in which we live is that we become very quickly convinced. God's got this, but it's still on me. Jacob's out there. He's like, I've got to convince my brother to sell the birthright. I'm going to trick my father to get the blessing. I have to be successful. I can't fail. I've got to work this. I can't leave anything up to chance. I've got to give it my all. I'll trick someone if I have to, whatever it takes. I'm going to make this thing work. I don't want to be ordinary. I don't want to be beneath the pack. I want to be popular. I want to achieve. I want to rise above everything else. I'm desperate to be successful. I can't leave anything up to chance. I've got to, I've got to make sure that I'm, I'm focused and resolute. Every day has got to count. This is on me. This is on me. I better work it because this is on me. I can't ever have a bad day. This is on me. I've got to make sure that I'm up before the dawn because it's on me. I've got to go after. I can't relax. I can't ever let a day be unproductive. It's on me. It's on me. Thinking it's on me has a massive impact to the life that you and I are going to live. Most of us think it's on us. And you can tell whether you think it's on you or not by the way that you face difficulty. Because if it's on you and you face difficulty of any kind, the truth is when you experience difficulty in your life, we doubt whether we're going to make it through. That doubt is symptom of the fact that you think it's on you. So the size of the problem determines the size of the doubt. And if the problem is big enough, my friend, then you're going to spiral. Baby, you're going to spiral. You're going to spiral down into all kinds of anxiety. We are the most anxious generation in the history of the world. We're going to spiral into fear. We're going to spiral into panic. And this inner turmoil manifests itself in all kinds of really toxic ways in our lives. Anger. We get really angry at others just because we're losing control in any situation that we find ourselves in. We become paralyzed with fear in the face of challenge and we don't even do what we know we need to do. Why are we paralyzed by fear? We're paralyzed by fear because we doubt that we're gonna make it through because we think it's on us. We fall into depression, envisioning the loss of what we desire or what we have. You know what's crazy about our lives is that for many of us, we experience mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning in our lives for things that we've never had. We have a moment of difficulty in our lives and we're filled with grief, not about losing what we've got right now, but we think because of the moment of difficulty that we're experiencing, we're gonna lose something that we thought we were gonna get. We haven't got it yet, but we're already experiencing grief and it isn't even ours yet. We just thought that one day we were gonna get it. Come on, does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, you can have all kinds of emotions that just run crazy through your life 
if you're not careful because you think that it's on you. When I think that it's on me, it's impact, it impacts the way that I view myself, whether I like myself or not. If you think it's on you and you're doing well, then you're gonna be very pleased with you. But if you think it's on you and you're not doing very well, it's not too hard to find people who honestly are resentful of themselves hate themselves, hate God, see themselves as defected, imperfect, things that are wrong with them that they resent and wish that they could change. It's gonna determine whether you like the life that you're living. It's gonna determine whether you like the people that are in your life. The truth is that so much of the toxicity in our lives come from, comes from the simple fact that we doubt what God wants to be certain. Our uncertainty releases toxicity into our lives. We doubt whether we're gonna make it. We doubt whether we'll ever find love. We doubt whether God is going to forgive us. We doubt whether He even cares. Doubt. Doubt is a ruthless master. By the way, it's gonna get good. I just wanna take you into the problem. I'm the surgeon. I gotta open it up. We're gonna get out all the rubbish and we're gonna stitch it all back together. Stay with me. Doubts are a ruthless master. James 1.6 says that he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. They are driven and tossed by the wind. When doubt is in your life, you're driven. When you look at the life of Jacob, Jacob was a driven character. I mean, he wasn't apathetic. He was a hard worker. He was resilient. He went after it. And there are people hearing this message tonight and people credit you with being a hardworking individual. It doesn't mean that you don't doubt. Your hard work isn't coming from the fact that you're certain about who you are. You're fearful that you're not who you want to be. Your driven nature is not your friend. It's not your blessing. It's your curse. Because when you doubt, you'll become a driven person in your life. He who doubts is driven and tossed. Doubting people are tossed. Circumstances in their lives can make them flip. One moment they're good, the next moment they're terrible. One moment they're optimistic, next moment pessimistic. One moment full of rejoicing and expectation, the next apprehension. Thinking everything's gonna be amazing and thinking then everything is gonna come falling apart. Driven, sorry, doubting people are tossed. <laughs> and the problem with doubts is that you don't ever take the time to, to confront your doubts either. Anybody out there ever sat down and consciously doubted your doubts? We don't. We don't. Oh, sometimes a big enough crisis will make you do it, but that notwithstanding, the truth is we just live with them. We have a certain level of functionality, certain level of dysfunction. We're plagued on the inside. We experience all this toxicity on the inside of our lives. And we never, we just live with it. We live with all that fear, that anger, those questions, that hatred, that longing, just because of our doubt. Like we said on week one, you can go a long way in your life and still be tormented. What causes us to live like this, with this mindset that it's on me, it's on me, it's on me. God's real, but it's on me. Wow. Is the fact that from the time you were born, you became programmed to think transactionally. Wow. That there is cause and effect, input and output. 
Help me out. Everybody, every campus, say this out loud and say it like you have to yell it because I'm deaf, even if you're in an auditorium where I'm not standing. One plus one equals two. Say it again. One plus one equals two. You have been trained from the time that you were young that there is cause and there is effect. That the whole basis of the life that you're living is transactional. What do you mean, John? I mean, work hard, do well. That's transactional. Do well, be loved. Do poorly, be rejected. Input and output. We get what we earn. We get what we deserve. We get what we work for. We get what our performance credits us with. That's what it means to be a transactional person. My destiny relies on my hard work. My wealth is the result of my efforts. And you can tell if you think transactionally by this one test. You fear what you cannot control. This is the reason why COVID is messing with the mental health of millions of people around the world today because when COVID jumped into our lives, it was, even though it's a virus so small that human eye cannot detect it, it is bigger than we have the ability to determine or control. And because we don't think that we think I've got to do this. It's on me. It's my work. It's my effort. It's my energies, my focus, my brilliance. It's on me. It's on me. And then something jumps into your life that you can't determine or control. And suddenly everything in your world comes tumbling down because it is a revealer of the fact that we are not in charge of everything in our lives. It interferes with my efforts. Now, Jacob, in our passage of Scripture, God turns up in his life, and I told you it's the most boring but the most significant. Because of the three visitations of Jacob, the first one is when he sees the stairway going to heaven and coming back to earth, and he has an encounter with God, and he's awakened to the reality of God. In the second, he wrestles with God all night, and then God comes to him, and he changes his name. You are no longer Jacob, but Israel. God only turns up in Jacob's life three times. And the third of the three, all God does is turn up and there's no wrestle, there's no stairway, there's no angels. It's kind of like, this is so boring, you probably read it and never highlighted it in your Bible. Yet what we need to be aware of is that in the third of three, these three moments that Jacob had with God, all God did was remind him of what it already told him. You're not Jacob, you're Israel. What's the significance? Jacob is a transactional name and Israel is a positional name. Jacob literally means he deceives or he supplants. In other words, this is a guy who just goes after it and that's how he gets what he wants in life. The word Israel means God prevails. It's not on me, it's on God. God is over my life, God is in my life. It's not about my efforts. I don't actually add anything to what he has said he will do. Jacob is positional, sorry, transactional, and Israel is positional. Transactional says it's on me, and positional says it's who I am. 
Positional says, I am going to walk in the fullness of what God wants for me in my life, not because of my efforts and energies, but because of the beauty and the wonder of His plan for me in my life. If you're excited about that, every location, put your hands together and give God some praise. You're not Jacob, you're Israel. One of the central things God wants to do in our lives, friends, is to bring us to a place where He is able to confront the doubts we have in our hearts about who we are and who He has called us to be. The reason why He wants to confront them is to free us from the tormenting emotions that we experience, from the toxicity that we have in our lives and that we inflict on the people that are around us so that we can live the life that God wants us to live. The greatest change that could come into your life would be a change of understanding about what God intends for you. God literally comes to him and he says, you're not Jacob, you're Israel. Your underlying assumptions are not correct. You think you're doing it, but actually Jacob, I'm doing it. Because of who I made you to be, there is favor over your life. God is trying to stop us from thinking transactionally. He wants us to live positionally. Someone shout, it's who I am. am. Say it again. It's who I am. One more time. It's who I am. When Arise was about 12 years old, my brother gave me a book. I think he meant to bless me. He'd read the book. It had been tremendously inspirational to him. And so he gave it to me. He's the executive pastor of Arise. I don't know where he is tonight. This morning he was in Palmerston North. But the, he gave me this book because he loved it. And he said, John, I think you'd really love to read this. And the book was called, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And he said, it's such a good book. I loved it. I think you're really going to love it. I did not love it. <laughs> he meant it to bless me. But the truth is, it deeply, deeply challenged me. Let me just give you a little summary. The book is basically saying that so many people who begin businesses, or in my case, organizations, a church, a charitable organization, when people begin things like this and they are successful, what happens along the way is often the leader or the team begin to attribute elements of what they did to being the reason why they are successful. And often the cold, hard light of day and the data and looking at it deeply you realize by analyzing the organization that it's not actually what they did that got them where they are. They were successful in spite of what they did, not because of it. In other words, what you did didn't get you where you are, so what got you here is not gonna get you there. And for me, it was confronting because I thought there were all these things and leaders think that there are all these things. I was driven, I was ambitious, I was a strong leader, decisive. That's the reason we got where we were. And suddenly you start to realize sometimes it's not what you did that got you where you are. And if it wasn't what you did that got you where you are, it's not what you're doing that is gonna get you where God wants you to go. What are you talking about, John? I'm saying that from the moment you popped out of your mother's womb, you began to experience experiences. You had successes, you had failures, you had wins and you had losses, you had things that went well, and you had things in your life that didn't go well. And during the course of your life, you've been analyzing, not even consciously, but you've been analyzing everything that you've been doing and attributing the reason why my life is good is because of this. And the reason why my life is not good is because of that. 
And if I can hold to this and give away on that, then my life is going to be what I would desire it to be. What got you here won't get you there. That's why Matthew 6 is such a powerful passage. Write it down if you are taking notes. People who do take notes go to heaven. Matthew 6, 25 all the way to 33. Read it when you get home. He said, why do you worry about your life? What you will eat, what you will wear. Why do you get so concerned about what you're going to do with your, where your food is going to come from, where your clothes are going to come from? Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. The lilies of the field don't spin or weave, yet I clothe them in greater majesty than the Carhartt you're wearing today. Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap because you're looking at your life and you're like, it's on me. It's on me. That is the most notion that says I've got to sow and I've got to reap. And God's saying, do you really? Is it really on you? Because the birds of the air don't sow and the birds of the air don't reap, but I feed them faithfully. And if without their input, I take care of them, then without your input, I can take care of you. God's trying to tell us it's not on you. It's who you are. It's not the work that you bring to the table. It's the man or the woman that God has called you to be. Man, if you believe that, could you give God some praise? See, in in Matthew 6, verse 27 is a crazy verse. Jesus literally said these words. I want you to hear it. He said, which of you by worrying could add a single hour to your life? Team, if you have it, throw it up on the screen. Matthew 6, verse 27. Which of you by worrying could add a single hour to your life? (laughs) Could your effort add 60 minutes to your life? Not your day, not your week, not your month. But could all your contribution change your life by 60 minutes? Could you add 3,600 seconds to your life just by worrying? If you can't do that, then why do you attribute so much to your contribution? Why do you think this thing is so determined on you? Reading this book and thinking about this, this is where I got to in my life. And when I say this, you're going to think that I'm arrogant, but I want you to stay with me on the journey because I'm not. I'm just wanting to provoke you by the statement. Why did this Arise thing work? This Arise thing worked because God's favor is on my life. And I'm not saying that to be arrogant. I'm saying that up until I was confronted with the thought that it wasn't what I did that got me here, I thought there were so many things I did that were added to the table. And God's saying, no, I didn't, it didn't succeed because of you. It actually succeeded in spite of what you were doing because I've placed favor on your life. I've done what you don't deserve. I took you further than your efforts were worthy of. I chose to move in your life because I've already declared this over you to do it in your life. I'm here to tell you, God is going to bless you. God is going to use you. There is destiny on your life. There's favor on the person that you are. God never made a reject. God never left anybody alone. There is favor on your life. It's not what you do, it's who you are. 
Somebody shout, it's who I am. It's who I am. God literally turns up and says, you're not Jacob, you're Israel. It's not what you did, it's who you are. One more time, can we just give God some praise right now? It's on God. What did Kanye say? It's on God. It's on God. Somebody shout, it's on God. One, two, three, it's on God. One more time. It's on God. One more time. It's on God. I wish I had the backing track. Man, if you have a Bible, jump over to Romans chapter 8. I think the band are eager to get out here. Come on out here, but just make sure my monitors is louder than the drummer. Again, I want my voice to last. And Leith, you know, he gets passionate out here. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, I want to finish with my favorite. Probably, this is probably, I've, I don't think I've mentioned any passage of Scripture in the history of Arise Church more than Romans 8, 31 to 39. I first preached on this verse in 2007 at the Paramount Theater. Come on, we're going back to Courtney Place, everybody. Where we used to have to pack out the church in the afternoon so they could show a movie. And then we would pack back in for the evening service. And then after the evening service, we would pack out the auditorium very, very quickly. They would show the eight o'clock movie and we would get all the kids stuff out and then they would come back into the auditorium once the movie had finished, climb over the popcorn and remove everything that was in the auditorium. 2007, I love this passage of Scripture so much. This passage of Scripture is so powerful because it confronts us with a series of questions that challenge the way we think about God and more importantly, the way we think about ourselves in light of who He is. Verse 31, I love it. It says, what shall we say in response to such wonderful things as these? In other words, go back and read the whole of Romans and you'll figure out what those wonderful things are. Here's the most important question you can ever ask yourself in your life. You got it on screen? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no question that you need to answer more in your life than this one question. What, what question, John? Is God for you or is God against you? Is it? Not what you say with your head, what you say with your heart. Not with what you yell in the middle of a church service, but in the way you respond to life's difficulties. Is God for you or is God against you? Is He judge and lawgiver or father and friend? Is He watching your life to see where you make a mistake? Or is He interceding on your behalf? Is He looking to take you down when you're proven as unworthy? Or is He working good in your life despite of how you perform on any given day? Is God for you or is God against you? It's the most important question in your life. And if you're trying to work out your answer to that question, let me ask you another question that's not in the Bible, but I wanna to add to it. How did you find and how did you receive? How did you receive salvation? Did you bring anything to the table? Was it your work and effort that got you salvation in your life? My Bible tells me that I am saved by grace through faith. In other words, I'm not worthy of heaven. 
I'm not worthy or deserving of heaven. But God, by His grace, allowed Jesus to die in my place. Jesus paid the price for my sin. Jesus paid the price for my wrongdoing, for my selfishness, for my arrogance, for my pride. Jesus died in my place. And now by grace, Jesus gives me right standing with God and allows me access into heaven. His perfect sacrifice pays the price for my pride and rebellion against God and allows His righteous record to become mine and for heaven to then be my home. That's how I found salvation. I found it by grace. I found it by grace. So if God sent His Son to die for me in my place, does that sound like the actions of a God who is against me? That sounds to me like the love of a God who is recklessly in love with you, who is deeply concerned with you, who's willing to suffer an excruciating death so that you would not be separated from Him, but that you would be blessed and forgiven and have the promise of eternity, have the love of God in your heart so that heaven can be your home. That's not a God who is against you. That is a God who is for you. God is for you. God is for you. God is recklessly in love with you. In every campus, if you believe that, could you praise God for someone around you who just needs to know God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Here's the question. Let's jump back into it. I love you. You can stay standing if you'd like to, but Romans 8, 31, grab a seat, grab a seat, because that'll allow me to go longer, and I love this passage. If God is for us, it's only the first half. If God is for us, then who could ever be against us? Why am I filled with so much doubt and fear and worry? And the reality is because I doubt whether He's for me or against me. It doesn't matter the size of COVID, God is bigger. It doesn't matter how greatly they hurt me at my school, my God is greater. It doesn't matter what abuse you throw at my life, my God is greater. And if God is for me, then who could ever be against me? Who could ever decide the outcome of my life if my God is on my side? If God is on my side, no demon in hell, no power from earth, no spiritual force, no person, no pressure, no circumstance, no money, no illness, nothing could ever separate or prevent the love of God from being prevalent in my life. Come on, if you believe it, can we give God some praise in this place tonight? If God is for us, if God is for us, if God is for us, then who could ever be against us? One more time, I'm gonna I'll try and be I'll try and be less passionate. Ha! Verse 32, let's go to the next verse. Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That word gave literally means he freely gave his son, right? How do we find salvation? Through grace. Grace literally means unmerited favor. God poured out His favor on my life and that's how I found salvation. And the Bible literally says, if He didn't spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all, finish it with me, 
won't he also give us everything else? What's What's that saying, John? That's saying this. Many people are a Christian in the way they think about salvation, but a non-Christian in the way they think about their lives. They believe Jesus gives them access into heaven. They don't trust that God is in charge of every other day of their lives as well. If He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for your salvation, won't He give you everything else as well? You miss it because you're reading it in English. We're saved by grace, unmerited favour. He gave His Son so that we could be saved. Then it says, won't He then give us everything else? That word give literally means to freely give or to bestow undeserved favour over your life. If favour got you salvation, then favour is going to bring you in to everything that God has for you. God started it, God's going to finish it. God's the author, God's the perfecter. God got you going and God's going to bring it to completion. God gave you the destiny and He's going to outwork the destiny in your life. It's not on you, it's who you are. Somebody give God some praise in this place tonight. Okay, 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 okay. We gotta, oh no, I've lost it. Romans chapter eight, I'm nearly done, I'm nearly done, I'm nearly done, I'm nearly done. Let's just stay standing because he's still in the questions. He, verse 33, who dares accuse those whom God has chosen? All the accusation that comes through your mind didn't come from heaven. Every time you feel accused, you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you're a bad person, you're a failure, you're inadequate, you're a loser, you're a cheat, you're a thief, you're a pervert. Who is gonna ever accuse you? Nobody, because Jesus died to make you righteous, loved, holy, forgiven. That accusation has no place, no valid place in your life. Oh, it goes on, here's another question, here's another question. Who is gonna condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of honour at God's right hand, pleading for us. When you read pleading, you miss this as well because you think begging. Have you ever heard the phrase, Brooke Fraser has a song where you should say, plead the blood, plead the blood. Pleading literally means to say about somebody, you think that because of that, that's what they're worthy of. I've got another set of evidence to introduce into the equation. Who's ever gonna condemn you? No one, because Jesus, every time they do it, is bringing out the record of His sacrifice, His death, and He's saying, no, 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 that might be true, but this is more true. That might be relevant, but this is more powerful. I have died for them and I rose to set them free. If you believe it, praise God just a little bit in this room. We're still in the questions. We're still in the verse in the questions. In verse 35, he says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Doesn't mean he no longer loves us. Doesn't mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecution or we're hungry or we're destitute or we're in danger or we're threatened by death. As the Scripture says, for your sakes we are killed every day. We are like being slaughtered like sheep. And then He changes in verse 37 from questions to declarations. No, in all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Overwhelming victory overwhelming victory 
and it's yours in the face of everything that life throws at you. You're hungry, but God's still gonna bless you. You get persecuted, but God's still gonna bring you through it. You're threatened with death, but God's still got your back. It's not on you, it's who you are. It's in your life because Jesus loves you. Then he goes on in verse 38, and this is what he said, I am convinced. My whole prayer for tonight is that we get to a point in our lives where we will be convinced. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, but even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is on your side and He's bigger than what life could ever throw at you, my friend. God loves you. He's madly in love with you. He won't take you down. He's gonna lift you up. Come on, if you believe it, could you give God a little bit of praise in this place tonight? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on, every campus, could you just stand to your feet wherever you are? Every lo- excuse me, every location, stand to your feet wherever you are. God really cares about you. God really loves you the making of me. God just wants to free us from so much of that stuff that hurts us on the inside, that plagues us, that drives us. He wants to bring us into a place where we're just able to accept. It's who I am. It's who I am. You're in a great place in your life. When you're able to stand in front of the mirror and say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's who I am. I'm one of God's kids. God has never made a mistake. I'm blessed, I'm highly favored. I love those words, they're really Christian, but they're so cool. I'm blessed and highly favored. You can say it, and it can be just rhetoric, but you can say it, and you can mean it. The situation's not bigger than God. The storm in my life is not bigger than God. I don't need to fear, I don't need to worry. I don't need to, I don't need to be, I don't need to look on Instagram and see you at the party and think that because you've got all the people around you, they staged the photo, didn't they, Kayla? They staged the photo, they hated the party. They just took three minutes in the middle of the party to get five people around them, do a quick Instagram vid, like we're having the best night of our lives. Really, they're feeling alone, they're feeling afraid, they're longing for their tracksuit pants. They just wanna watch a nice little rom-com on Netflix and eat a packet of corn chips and have a little sparkling water or Coke or something, but they staged it at the party. And what they staged to make you think that their life was awesome is now making you feel like your life sucks. But I'm here to tell you, what you see in another life doesn't change what God's got on the inside of you. You are God's child, God loves you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and the hand of God is on your life. Come on, if you believe it, every campus shout, it's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Give your God some praise, everybody. Come on. It's who I am. It's who I am. Come on, I'm gonna pray for you and then I'm done. Every location, why don't you close your eyes? God, I pray for every single person right now. I thank you, Lord, that you love us. I thank you that your hand is on our lives. I thank you that we don't have to fear circumstances. 
that whenever life might feel like it's falling apart, we can run to You. We can run to You over and over again to find love, to find encouragement, to find strength. I declare freedom to every life from all the torment, all the worry, all the fear, all the stuff that binds us, all the doubts that plague us. I declare freedom to every life because we thank You that You are a good Father, that You are a caring Father, that You love Your people. And we thank You in Jesus' Name. Amen and Amen and Amen. If you would like to find out more about Arise Church and Pastor John Cameron, visit arisechurch.com or connect with us on Instagram at arisechurch and at johncameronnz.